Our um, scripture passage this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verse 12 to chapter 6, verse 6. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me for the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of him, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need a sum? Letters of condemnation to you are from you. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the Spirit kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you, your goodness to us, your grace to us, that you have given us all that we need for, for life, and, life and for death. Father, we, we pray now for Tom that you would um, speak through him. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we might receive your word and that we might be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we... We did have a letter of condemnation. That one was nailed to the cross. <laughs> now we have a letter of commendation. Uh, this passage I have been, this is another one I've just been looking forward to getting to because this, was, this is a passage that, that God used to, uh, to radically adjust my understanding many, many years ago. Uh, my title for the message is Our Great and Godward Confidence. This passage sets before us uh, one of the most liberating, one of the most empowering promises that you or I will ever encounter. If you're a Christian and you've spent most of your Christian life on the sidelines watching other Christians do the really hard things that advance the kingdom of Christ, this promise will pull you off the bench and put you right in the thick middle of Christ's continuing work to seek and save the lost and to make disciples who will join you in that work. Before we look at the powerful promise of this passage, we need a little background to understand what, what Paul was dealing with as he wrote these words. I'll point out again that 
between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul delayed a plan, a previously announced plan, that he had to come uh, for an extended visit to Corinth. He did so because of a very painful exchange that he had had with the Corinthian saints. After hearing from Timothy, his co-worker, of the seeds of a mutiny in Corinth against Paul's apostolic ministry and thus against Christ's authority, Paul had come himself to Corinth to see for himself what was going on and to confront the leaders of that church to take action against the mutiny for the sake of Christ and of his church. I'm going to put a map up here. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was in Ephesus and he had returned to Ephesus. His brief visit to see what was going on after this report, he sailed across and came to Corinth and he was there briefly and then he went right back to Ephesus. From there he wrote that severe letter. After returning to Ephesus, uh, Paul again followed up with that letter and then after this whole exchange, Paul went from Ephesus to Troas because Troas was the the port, the jumping off point to come up here to Macedonia. Well, Paul went to Troas expecting to meet Titus, who was his co-worker as well. And Titus had been in Corinth and Paul had hoped very, very much that when he got to Troas that Titus would be there as planned and that Titus would bring a good report about how the Corinthians had responded to uh, the letter, the hard letter. Uh, when he got to, to Troas, Titus wasn't there. And he was, he was very, Paul was very uh, concerned, deeply concerned about what might have happened to Titus. And it's not clear, you know, there were many who abandoned Paul along the way in his ministry. And it's not clear whether he was wondering if, if that might have happened with Titus. But Paul went on, he proceeded from Troas over to Macedonia. And when he got there, Titus was there. And Titus was there with really good news. And we're not going to read it again, but if you come over to, uh, to chapter 7, you'll see how Paul rejoices in that good news. Uh, that, that the Corinthian saints had, in fact, responded to the letter, the visit and the letter, and they had disciplined this ringleader of the mutiny. Not only had the church in Corinth repented and taken action, but the ringleader had repented and was now contrite and sorrowful. And Paul, as we saw last week, encouraged, the, he told the Corinthians, the next thing you must do is forgive. Um, God had used this painful episode in a, very, in a very powerful way. Now here in chapter 2, Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened to me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking leave of them, I went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death 
to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Now the word that's translated triumph, the word that's translated triumph here actually means triumphal procession. In other words, victory parade. Triumphal processions were a very common phenomenon in Rome during the height of its, of its uh, prestige as the greatest military force and political force in that era. But in fact, George Guthrie records that there are over 300 such processions referenced in, in the literature of the Roman era. Over 300. And that's not to mention countless depictions of, of these kinds of processions on all manner of, of artifacts uncovered by archaeologists. Uh, coins, cups, arches, pillars, etc. Often in these Roman victory parades, the victorious general would forcibly include in the procession a few of the most prominent leaders of the nation or city-state that Rome had just conquered. He would parade them in public, and then at the end of the procession, he would generally kill them. The, uh, often in those parades, it was, it was the captives from the conquest that were paraded. Now, on that basis, if you've got the New International Version, that'll explain to you why the NIV renders part of the half of this verse, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. But... Guthrie explains that those who were led in procession by victorious Roman generals in these parades often included the general's own trusted officers and even Roman citizens who had been liberated. They had previously been captive in the place that was just conquered, and now they've been liberated and returned to Rome. Guthrie cites one especially intriguing account really got my attention by the Greek historian Plutarch, who, by the way, wrote during Paul's day. Plutarch writes of a Roman general named Scipio the Elder, who, after a decisive defeat of the Carthaginians, included in his triumphal procession a Roman citizen named Terentius, who had been captive in Carthage and who was now liberated, and he got to go walk along in the parade as a, as a sharer in the victory, right? That scenario strikes me as much more in keeping with the words that Paul actually uses here. Let me explain. Let me read verse 14 again from the New American Standard, which doesn't try to be interpretive here. It says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Now there are two words in that verse that should leap off the page for anyone who is familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul. Those two words are in Christ. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, you'll get my, my drift. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What Paul is saying here is that God leads us in triumph as those who like Paul were once enemies of Christ, but have now been graciously brought into everlasting union with Christ and who are now identified with Christ, clothed with Christ. We are in Christ. Through that marvelous union, 
What is true of Christ's role in his own victory parade has been made true of us because we are in him. We were once enemies of God like all the rest of humanity, but thanks be to God, we have now been made more than conquerors in Christ together with Christ. Now, all that matches up perfectly with with Colossians chapter 2, where Paul declares that it is the rulers and authorities on earth and in the heavenly places whom God disarmed and put on public display at the cross. They thought they were putting Satan, he thought it was the best day of his existence. He thought he had finally nailed the Lord of glory to the cross. But God did that through men, but God did that. And the triumph was Christ's triumph. In Romans 8, Paul says, we, you and I, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What Paul's getting at here is that God leads us in Christ's triumphal procession as sharers in his victory because he's put us in Christ. You with me? Does this make sense? All right, now, Paul goes on, he says, God leads us in Christ's triumphal procession always and in every place. Always and in every place. That means that the victory that we get to celebrate in Christ isn't only the one that we're waiting to see come to perfect fruition when he returns and lays claim to those whom he has redeemed and sets up his kingdom, right? On earth. (laughs) The redeemed earth. It's not just that victory that we celebrate our victory in him is today and tomorrow and every single day of our lives as his children we who belong to christ do battle every day on the side of the one whose absolute victory is already 100 percent certain perhaps the most stunning part of paul's declaration here is that christ the victor is using us as his instruments in that victory day after day. When he he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Now, in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, God refers to the sacrifices that he commanded the Israelites to offer up to him as a soothing aroma in his nostrils. Now, through Paul, God declares that we, whom he has made bearers of the personal knowledge of him because of the the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we have now become a fragrance of Christ to God, an aroma that goes up into the nostrils of God and that he finds sweet and pleasing. Paul says that God sends that same aroma into the nostrils of other people. But that smell is not pleasant to all men. In fact, it's repugnant to most. To those who are perishing, it is an aroma from death to death. Our proclamation of the gospel and our adornment of that gospel through lives that are lived for Christ 
are instruments in the hand of God to declare the eternal condemnation of all who persist in rejecting Christ. We are an aroma from death to death. That same gospel proclamation, that same adorn, adornment of the gospel through lives that are lived for Christ, declares to all who trust in Christ that the eternal life that they have entered into is also their destiny. We are an aroma from life to life. This is, this is about what they have now and what they will have forever. But we must not miss Paul's declaration that in both cases, the aroma of our witness in the world is delightful to God. And that's because God is glorified both in salvation and in judgment. God is glorified both in salvation and in judgment. And we're here to proclaim both. His glory is our purpose in all things. Now, we're co-conquerors in Christ, and now let's talk about our only real credentials. After declaring this, this wonderful truth about how God uses us in the world as, a, as an aroma, he poses a question that impacts everything he has said and everything he's about to say about our usefulness. And that question is, who is adequate for these things? Does that sound like an important question? Who is adequate to be used by God in the hearts of other human beings as an aroma from life to life for those who are being saved and from death to death for those who are perishing? Who is adequate? Well, Paul proceeds to give us God's answer, and it's a, it is a marvelous and liberating answer. But it is not the answer that our old nature wants to hear, so it's really important that we ask God to truly humble us to hear it. God's answer is that we have all been made adequate in Christ, sufficient in every way, right here and right now. We have been made powerfully and eternally useful to God. But that adequacy will never in any way come from us. Never in any way. And that last part is one of the most mission critical things that you and I will ever be told by our Master. In verse 17, Paul says of himself and his co-workers, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, the, the Greek word peddling has a strong connotation of misrepresenting something in order to make it more marketable. You ever run into anyone that does that? I got stories. Yeah, especially when it comes to buying used cars. Of course, the gospel of forgiveness and eternal life with God through faith in Christ alone is the best news ever. We can't improve on it. Modifying it just messes it up. 
But beloved, to embrace that incomparably good news, you and I had to agree with God about some incomparably bad news, right? God's assessment of you and me apart from Christ is the worst news ever. God says we all start out lost, spiritually dead, and headed toward everlasting condemnation. All of us. With absolutely nothing that we can do to fix that problem or to change that eternal destiny. The one and only solution for our slavery to sin and for the curse of death that we all have fully earned from God is the death of Jesus in our place at the cross and His glorious resurrection from the dead that guarantees our resurrection. Most people refuse to accept that they are enemies of God and that they are helpless to do anything about it. They won't accept the bad news, so they can't possibly trust the good news. You can't believe that Jesus saved you if you disagree with God about what he saved you from. Which, by the way, is him. But it's not only our desperate need for the atoning death of Jesus that makes most people reject the gospel. The same gospel is paradigm-shifting news about what our life as believers in Christ will be like here and now until we draw our last breath in these mortal bodies. Instead of promising us health, wealth, and prosperity in the here and now, the gospel assures us that all who trust in Jesus will spend the rest of their mortal lives sharing in his suffering until the day that he takes us home to God. That is necessary, it is inevitable, it is certain for everyone who is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's still another truth bound up in the gospel we bear to this world that many find very hard to accept, including many who have already trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. And that is the truth to which Paul is about to turn his focus. In Paul's day, just as in ours, there was no shortage of people who were adjusting and corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ either to eliminate or at least to greatly soften the blow of the bad news that must be accepted in order for the good news to be embraced. In defense of his own ministry, Paul declares here and elsewhere that he and his co-workers never made any such adjustments to Christ's gospel. He says, as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. He's saying it's all, it's all right there for everyone to behold. It's right in God's face. Paul says his handling of the gospel is from God and is submitted to God. In the first few verses of chapter 3, Paul presents his credentials, the proof that his ministry is indeed from God and is pleasing in the sight of God. And those credentials, Paul's Credentials do not include a bunch of letters after his name. No master's degree, no THD or PhD. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul declares that all his worldly credentials that had been so impressive to men before Christ laid hold of him and so impressive to himself, to Paul, were in reality nothing but garbage to be happily discarded quote, in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul asserts that he and his co-workers have no need at all to commend themselves, and they have no, lead, no need for any letters of commendation from anyone else in order to establish the legitimacy or integrity of their ministry on Christ's behalf. Why is that? Why did he need no commendation? Because the Corinthian saints and all the saints whom God has redeemed through the faithful gospel ministry of Paul and his co-workers are the only letter of commendation that they have or need. Paul says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So who wrote the, the commendation letter that, that Paul is talking about here? God, not men. And it wasn't written in ink on parchment. It was not engraved on tablets of stone. It was inscribed by God on tablets of human hearts. The hearts of Paul and his co-workers in the hearts of every child of God in Corinth or in any other place where God had, had saved people and built up his church through, through the, the, the ministry of Paul or of anyone else. Beloved, our concern must never be for the commendation of men. In fact, in Galatians 1, Paul says, if I'm still trying to please men, I am no longer serving Christ. The only letter of commendation that you or I will ever need is the one that God writes on the hearts that he transforms as we faithfully proclaim Christ and follow Christ. Now what gave Paul such great confidence in God's commendation of his ministry? How did he know that he and his co-workers were being used by God in this way? And how do you and I ever know that the same is true of us? How can we ever have the same kind of unwavering confidence in our usefulness and effectiveness for Christ that Paul clearly had in his? The answer is in verses 4 through 6. And this, beloved, is what you and I very much need to know. The only adequacy that we will ever have or ever need. Ever since I was a, a brand new Christian as a young man and first came upon this passage, these three verses have freed me up to do things for Christ that I would never have even considered doing if this promise wasn't true. And I pray that it will have the same effect on everyone else. Many of you, it has already it has already liberated and freed up in that way. Here's the promise, and I'm going to go back, put it back up on the screen, right there. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, Godward confidence, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything, anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who's made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Beloved, that promise has been ringing in my head for 48 years. I hope it'll ring in your head too. Paul covers this from every angle so that we'll know exactly what he's saying and what he's not saying. Every word of those three verses is bedrock to every child of God who wants to be useful to God. And hopefully that includes every child of God. The confidence of which Paul speaks here, the confidence that fortified Paul to persevere in the midst of every hardship, of every threat, of every accusation against, raised against him and his ministry, had absolutely nothing to do with self-confidence. All of his confidence was Godward, not manward, not selfward. And please hear me when I say this, guys. It was not self-esteem. It was Christ-esteem. If you think that your usefulness to God depends in any way on anything that you bring to the table, I pray that you are listening very carefully to what God is saying right here through Paul. The transforming truth that Paul sets before us here was and still is absolutely intolerable to the mindset of this world. And it's arguably more intolerable right now than it's ever been before, at least in our culture. In his book titled Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton said, a man, listen to this, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. He goes on and he says, nowadays, the part of a man that the man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert, himself. The part that he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not doubt, the divine reason. And by divine reason, he means the revelation that God has given us of himself and of his promises. Chesterton wrote that in 1908. We got worse after that. In an excellent message on this same passage in 2 Corinthians, Alistair Begg cites another author named Frank Furetti, not Peretti, Furetti, from his 2004 book titled The Therapy Culture. Listen to this, this is great. Furetti wrote that a search of 300 UK newspapers in 1980 did not find a single reference to self-esteem. It found three citations in 1986. By 1990, the figure had risen to 103. A decade later, in 2000, there were a staggering 3,328 references to self-esteem. Imagine what that number would be today. In the July 2009 version of the, uh, edition of the Wall Street Journal, Peggy Noonan wrote, for 30 years, the self-esteem movement told the young that they're perfect in every way. It has yielded something new in history, an entire generation with no proper sense of inadequacy. No proper sense of inadequacy. Beloved, self-esteem, trust in the worth and power of your own ability, experience, skill, achievements, resolve, logic, attractiveness, strength, 
And these days, even in the superiority of your own personal truth, has become the most sacred of all idols. And an idol it is. God never intended for us as His image bearers to find any of those things in ourselves. He created us to ascribe all that is rightfully called power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing to Him and to Him alone. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. God created us for humble dependence on the one who possesses all that greatness because we don't. And it is only in that humble dependence that we are made useful and valuable. The last part of 2 Corinthians 3.6 is just as mission critical as the rest of verses 4-6. through 6. God from whom our adequacy comes, all of it, has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That statement is the hinge to the rest of chapter 3 that we'll look at next time. But for now, what I want to reckon with is what he says right here in verse 6. It is not the letter that makes us adequate for the work that God has filled our hands to do. It is the Spirit. And what does that mean? Not the letter, but the Spirit. It means that it is not checking, it is not keeping the right rules that makes us adequate. It is not having the right checklist with all of the boxes checked that makes our ministries effective. It is not even the right methodology or the right church programs. It is the Holy Spirit in us. He makes us adequate to do the work of Christ on earth. He and He alone. That means that our constant mode of operation in this life must be humble, prayerful dependence on the mighty work that God promises to do in and through us. There are two lies that are equally crippling to Christians. By the way, I'm just going to give you, in case you're listening to this later, the last bullet point up here says, conclusion, freed from self to serve the living God. Freed from self to serve the living God. There are two lies that are equally crippling to Christians. They sound like opposites, as if one would cancel out the other. But in reality, they both stem from and are nurtured by the same poison root. The first lie says that the only way I will accomplish great things for Christ in this life is to work with all my might to make myself useful. I must learn enough to have a ready answer for every challenge to the Christian faith so I can share the gospel without messing it up. I must rack up as many letters after my name as possible so that I'll have the credentials to be worthy of respect. I must make myself eloquent and attractive, charming, and funny I must set lofty goals and work tirelessly to achieve those goals in order to accomplish in this life what God wants me to accomplish. That's the first lie. The second lie sounds a lot easier. It says that I'm nothing, I am nothing like those people that God uses to accomplish great things for Jesus, so I'll have to be satisfied to just bide my time sitting on the sidelines until he comes and takes me home. 
Running the race is other people's problem. The poisoned root from which both of those lies stem and upon which both of them feed is the really big, bald-faced lie that says my usefulness to God depends on anything that comes from me. God surely created human beings to do His work, His way, in His creation as the only creatures created in His image. You find that on the first page of the Bible. But there's one more piece of that design without which the whole design is negated. And that is that God made us for Himself. And to continually draw us to Himself, He made us dependent on Him. Our divine assignment as His agents and image bearers demands our continual prayerful dependence on Him in all things and for all things. The fact that we are all inadequate to do Christ's work on earth should be no surprise to us at all, right? I mean, of course we're inadequate. That's what you call back page news. In order for each Christian in this room to have turned to Christ in faith and been saved in the first place, you already had to agree with God that you were lost and dead in your sin, deserving only His condemnation and unable to do anything about that problem. Unable to do anything to make yourself righteous in His eyes. Our sin debt had to be paid by Jesus Christ alone and His righteousness had to be credited to us. We brought nothing to the table. It's all Christ. So why would we think that we bring in anything to the table now that we've been redeemed. The simple, beautiful, liberating truth is that you and I continue to be as utterly dependent on God for our usefulness as we were for our salvation. If your feelings or your logic tell you that you're inadequate to accomplish mighty things for Christ, rejoice! Up to that point, your feelings and logic are actually in line with reality, and that doesn't happen very often, right? You're exactly right about yourself, and you're actually a whole lot closer to where God intends for you to be than the Christian who thinks he's all that. There can be no true dependence on God without a right assessment of our own inadequacy. But if your feelings or your logic or both tell you that your inadequacy prevents God from using you to accomplish mighty and miraculous things for Christ, then you have bought into a pernicious and crippling lie that Satan loves to tell Christians. You're right about yourself, now be right about God. Submit your feelings and your reasoning to God's revelation just as you and I must do in all things. Stop listening to yourself and listen to God. Walking by faith and not by sight means that we trust God's word and the precious and magnificent promises that it proclaims more than we trust our own five senses. It means that we happily dispense with our own word or anyone else's 
in order to embrace his word and his promises. Do you want to be mightily used by God to advance the kingdom of the one who gave his life to save you and to make you his own? Then know this, beloved. He is all the adequacy you will ever have and he is all the adequacy you will ever need to accomplish absolutely everything on his behalf that God left you here to accomplish. You and I can take on any task. We can go toe-to-toe against any opponent of Christ, even if they're a whole lot more intellectually acute than we are. We can step with both feet into any challenge, never second-guessing or looking back. We can love any person with the love of Christ. We can endure any hardship. We can persevere through any trial because we know that in all things, Christ is all the adequacy we will ever have and He is all the adequacy that we will ever need. We have been forever freed from self, praise God, to serve the living God. If you're still trying to find yourself, I know you've heard me say this before, if you're still trying to find yourself, it's time to get lost. (laughs) If you got to the end of that road, if somehow you found yourself, there wouldn't be anything there worth celebrating. Amen. There's just Christ. Walk day by day in the freedom of utter dependence on the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who made us for himself and who intends to use us to draw lost souls out of the darkness into his astonishing light until the day that he takes us home. Loving Father, what precious and magnificent promises you have made to your children. And this is among the most precious of all. Give us the humility and the courage to walk in this promise every day until Jesus comes back to claim his own. We ask this in his incomparable name. Amen.